We're in this book of Matthew, this section of Matthew, where Christ has been in a conflictual relationship with the Pharisees. And in chapter 12, Christ has said to these Pharisees, after he says, come to me, all you're weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He says that these Pharisees, basically, as we at it, were men who were the purity party of Judaism, who commended themselves to one another and tried to earn the favor of God. And they totally missed the reality of Christ. In fact, Christ says, you glory in temple worship as you should, but I tell you that one greater than the temple walks among you, Christ. He says, you glory in the prophets as you should, but I tell you that one greater than the prophet Jonah walks among you, Christ. He says, you glory in the Davidic kingdom and the line that came from David, including Solomon. But I tell you that one greater than Solomon walks among you, Christ. Christ says, I'm the prophet, priest, and king. And they were in this massive conflict. And as they continued this discussion, the crowds grew. And so we come to chapter 13. And I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 9 and then 18 to 23. Those verses are in your worship guide. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And he sowed some seeds uh, that fell among the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced some a hundredfold, and some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And then verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, and in another sixty, and in another thirty. So, this is a parable, and if you've been uh, involved in the church or been a believer very long, you've heard the parable of the sower. Well, what's amazing is there's this huge crowd is gathered around Christ. It's so huge he has to get in the boat and go out so he can really address them. And instead of announcing, I'm Messiah, follow me, he tells them parables. A parable is a story. Let me give you a definition. A parable is a story with one blazing truth at its center. 
Every parable has one blazing truth that Christ is trying to communicate to a group of people, many of whom are illiterate. So, so that's parable as compared to the allegorical understanding of the parables. Let me explain that. In, in the Greek Orthodox community today, in their worship, uh, and in the early church, there was what was called the allegorical approach to Bible study. There was a layer truth, but then there were deeper truths that spoke to deeper realities in the Christian faith. I, I personally reject that. The Reformers rejected that. When the Reformation happened, they talked about teach the plain text, the plain truth of the text. For example, the parable of the Good Samaritan. A man came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Christ says, you should love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so the man said, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus told the story of the, of the Good Samaritan. Obviously, the principle there is to define who our neighbor is. And the answer is, the neighbor, my neighbor is everyone, everyone. But in that parable, people that hold the allegorical method say that, well, in that parable, potentially, um, the man who is beaten represents mankind. The Samaritan represents Jesus Christ. The, the Levite and the priest who went around the beaten man represent the law and the prophets. Uh, the donkey upon which the man placed his burden represents the physical body of Jesus. And the inn where he went and he was bandaged and cared for represents the church where people are restored and healed and cared for. That's the allegorical method. The problem is I just don't believe that's in the text. And you fly off in 15 different directions. But a parable has one searing truth that stabs you in the heart. Another example, I was in seminary, I was doing a paper on one of my favorite preachers, a man named Charles Spurgeon. So I was reading some of his sermons, and Spurgeon sometimes slipped into this. And he was, he was a, I, I can't hold his coat. I mean, he is 5,000 times beyond me. But he was talking about Noah and the flood and how after 40 days and 40 nights, they were at sea for 150 days. And finally, Noah released a raven to see if the raven would bring back a branch or land somewhere. The raven did not come back. And then two doves. And the second dove came back with a branch in its beak saying, yes, there's dry land out there. And Spurgeon says, obviously, obviously the raven represents original sin. And the dove that brought the branch back represents the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's great theology. It's just terrible Bible study. So what I'm saying is there is one searing truth from this text, and here it is. Jesus is saying, be very careful how you hear and respond to the message of the gospel. Be very careful. Don't be like the Pharisees who get involved in minutiae and miss the obvious picture. Be very careful how you receive the Scripture. That's point, preliminary point number one. Preliminary point number two is this. The Scripture is given to awaken me to the beauty and glory of the triune God and my brokenness, and it builds His people. I believe that churches are built. I believe that families are built. I believe that institutions are built, Christian institutions, by the authority and the understanding of and the application of the Word of God. So I say to you, if you're a Christian person here this morning who professes Christ as your Savior, be very careful how you hear and apply the Scripture. 
Because the scripture is given to awaken me and to build me. The text everybody runs to. 2 Timothy in the pastoral epistles. All scripture, chapter 3, verse 16, is given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Doctrine, good, sound, biblical thinking. Reproof, challenging, unbiblical thinking. Correction, correcting my life, how I should live. And instruction in righteousness, how I might flourish. Next verse. So that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped, able to do every good work. So, so I, I read this. As I, I read this, and as my heart is open to it, 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 it awakens in me my, the glory and the beauty and the majesty of the triune God, the greatness of Christ, and my need. And as it does that, it builds me. My question to you this morning is, how are you receiving the Word of God? How are you receiving the message of the gospel? Are you listening and making meticulous application? Because as you do that, God builds you. I, I believe marriages are built by the reality of the Word of God under the authority of the Holy Spirit as Christ is exalted. I believe that. I believe children are raised as they are nurtured under the authority of the Bible by the power of the Holy Spirit as Christ is exalted. I believe churches hold together and flourish as they do that. So, so I, I look at this and I say, God, teach me. Point three, preliminary point three. Hear this. In this parable, the seed is universally given. The sower universally throws it out. The problem is not with the seed or the sower. The issue is with the soils, the hearts. See, the, the word is broadcast. The word is given. The problem is with the soils, the different responses by the soils. This week, on Thursday, the headline news in the BBC dealt with a horrible situation that has been out there since 1995. In 1995, in, in a place called Srebrenica, which is 150 miles north of Sarajevo during the horrendous Balkan Wars of 1992 to 1995. In 1995, uh, the Serbian army had surrounded Sarajevo. They leveled it with all types of bombardments. They conquered Sarajevo. Basically, the, the Bosnian Muslims fled north to a place called Srebrenica. And there were 8,000 in that environment, 8,000 men in that environment. And, and so there was a peacekeeping force of Dutch soldiers, about 120 Dutch soldiers. And, and they were supposed to guard these Muslims from an army that we think numbered as much as 150,000 people. And they had Russian tanks that they had gotten from the Russians. And and, and the Dutch peacekeepers, being with the UN, had basic, really, had handguns. That's all they had. Handguns and a, a couple of, you know, footballs to throw people. They just didn't have anything. There's 150 or 140 versus 100,000. So they got there. They captured some of the Dutch. They, they entered into dialogue. And they said, if you don't surrender the 354 men in your compound, we will level the compound and kill you as well. But just give them to us, and we'll take them to concentration camps and be done with it. 
And so after this negotiations, when they saw they had no option, the Dutch surrendered uh, the men of Sabricia and boys. They, the women and girls were just left for the troops. They surrendered them to the Serbs, including the 354 men in their compound that were seeking refuge. And so what happened, as we know, is called the Massacre of Sabricia. The Serbs took them out into the forest, put them in groups of 10, machine gunned them, and bulldozed them into open graves. 8,000 men and boys, aged 15 to 70, were killed. 8,000. In the aftermath of that, there was a group of women called the Mothers of Sabricia, years later, who went to the Dutch government and said, we want to sue the Dutch army for their complicity in giving our boys and our husbands uh, to the Serbs. And so they went to court, and the lower court found that the Dutch soldiers were not guilty. And then they sued and went to the next level court. And the next level court said, so after examining this information, we find that the Dutch soldiers, our, our soldiers, were 30% liable. And they went to the higher court. They weren't satisfied. And just this past Wednesday, the higher court ruled, the Supreme Court of the Netherlands ruled that the Dutch soldiers were 10% liable. And the mothers were very upset. Now, I'm not here to discuss whether the finding is right or wrong. But my issue is, I don't understand how you can be 30% responsible or 10% responsible. But when I look at this text, hear this. You are 100% responsible for how you receive and apply the Bible. Now, I know the Holy Spirit has to teach. I understand that. But you are responsible for how you receive the word. So my question is, how are you receiving the word? So this morning I'm talking to you about the soils, really the first three soils, next week the fourth soil. But three soils. The first soil, Jesus says, received the word, but the birds came down and took away the seed. Now in, in, in that in the Palestine, there are small gardens, and you indiscriminately throw the seed, and there are, there are paths where people walk through gardens and walk around gardens, and they're hardened, baked by the desert sun, and they're, they're, so you throw the seed, and the seed's not going to do anything, so the birds come and took it away. And, and, and it represents a careless, hardened heart. It represents no eternal perspective and very limited understanding of the character of God or desire to hear from Him. There are people here today who have hardened hearts, careless hearts. They're here, but they're really not here. Um, be careful how you hear the word. So I just got back, Sarah and I just got back from the West Coast, spent two weeks and two days with our grandkids. We come back emotionally full and physically exhausted. So, you know, ages three and a half, two, and seven months, so five months. So we were, I was out one day shopping, getting groceries, kids, all the kids in the back seat. So I'm pumping gas, and there's a guy in front of me who's pumping gas. And, and uh, he's standing there, and one of his a friend came up and says, where have you been? I haven't seen you in months. And I, I'm, I'm trying, I don't want to eavesdrop, but I find out later they're 85 and 84, and they're screaming at each other. You know, you couldn't help but hear what they said. And the guy goes, well, I died on April the 19th. And his friend said, you died? He said, yes, I had a massive heart attack. And I was dead and my wife called 
911 and they walked her through how to give me, you know, CPR. And she helped provide me till the EMS got there. And so they took me to the hospital and said, you were dead. And they put in uh, three stents and a pacemaker and whatever. And said, so that happened April 9th. I'm just now getting out. And his friend, three or four experts later, said, wow, you must be glad to have a little lady who knows how to do CPR. And she's standing sitting there in the car. And she said, I really am. He says, well, you blankety blank, thank you. Now, not because you're throwing out experts doesn't mean you're a bad guy, but there, there was not a sense of, wow, I stood on the edge of eternity and faced death in the face, and I am just barely here. And that morning, I'd been reviewing the New City Catechism Question of the Week, and let me just read it to you. It's in the worship guide. It's question 28. It says, what happens after death to those not united to Christ by faith? Answer at the day of judgment, they will receive the fearful but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them, that they will be cast out from the favorable presence of God into hell to be justly and grievously punished forever. And then I thought, these people around me, this, these, these two guys are standing on the edge of eternity and it doesn't get, they, don't, they don't get it. Hear me. I believe the scripture teaches there is something that theologians call the judicial hardening of the heart. That, 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 yeah, I talk to people all the time, they'll say, I'll get serious about faith when I'm 35, 45, 50, whatever, uh, but, but, but not right now. See, here's the issue. There comes a point where you're so deaf to it that a friend can tell you he died, and all I can say is an expletive and say, take care of yourself. Today, as you hear the Word of God, if you have had a hardened heart and you're not a believer, be very careful how you listen and come to Christ. Come to Christ. Because there is a devil who wants to snatch this from your life. So my question is, how are you receiving the Scripture? To those who are indifferent, just, I've been... I'll try to, every other year, try to reread Augustine's Confessions. Augustine died in 430. He wrote a book called The Confessions about how he came to faith in Christ. And it's a glorious book. You read it three or four pages a, a day, and you can finish it in a couple of months. It's, it's weighty, but it's glorious. But as, as I've read, read it this time, I've come away thinking, you know, two, two major things. Number one, Augustine is absolutely boulderized, blown away by the majesty and the beauty and the goodness and the mercy of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's blown away. The second thing he's blown away by is the twisted nature of the human heart <laughs> and the brokenness and how we need a rescuer daily. But I was, I just put this in the worship guide. Augustine for years fled from the presence of God till age 32, 33 because he was afraid to meet the one that he knew was there because he was afraid he would take away his joy. And he says the most astounding experience that he had was the one to whom he was to come, was the author of joy and happiness and fulfillment and peace and purpose. And so this is what he writes. There is nothing more tender than your love, nor is there anything more helpfully than your truth. It's bright and beautiful above all. Luxury desires to be called plenty and abundance, but thou art the fullness and never-failing plenteousness of pleasures. And I thought, you know, do, do, I, do I go before the Lord and say, Lord, you are the fullness and, and the completeness of pleasure. 
I mean, am I, am I absolutely thunderstruck by, by the greatness and the mercy and the grandeur of the living God? The creator God. Does it awaken in me an understanding of the greatness of God and my need? So, reading a book recently, and one of the stories was about the, the Humanist Association of Great Britain in 2008 had a, a, a bus campaign. They rented out these buses and places for, in London, and they put on the side of the bus this big slogan. This is 2008. Quote, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Close quote. So there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Now I was reading a magazine called The Humanist Journal, and it gave a new definition of humanism, which really means man is the measure of all things. God is, if God is, he's inconsequential. It says this, humanism is a joyous alternative to religions that believe in a supernatural God and the life and the hereafter. It is a joyous alternative. Now, there, there are people here this morning that are kind of flirting with this system of thought. There, there are people that I know who are much smarter than I am, and they call themselves humanists. And, and they're good neighbors, and they're, they're, they're good friends, and they're, you know, God bless them, but... but, but I just step back, for the life of me, a joyous alternative? I got up this morning, went out, watched the sunrise. It was beautiful. Beautiful. Multiple colors. As, as a follower of the living God, I say the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If I'm a humanist, I'm saying, wow, it's a, it's a mistake. Gas has got together, here we are. I saw these, the birds fly over. I heard their songs, beautiful songs. I said, wow, a creator God made these birds. Humanists, eh, it's a mistake. I come to church, I meet people that are dear to me. And I say, you know, these people are made in the image of God and they're worthy of respect and Christian love. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ. The humanist comes in here and says, you know, these people, uh, are, are, they're fine people, but their worth is based upon what they can bring to the economic or cultural heritage called the United States. So their, their worth is on, is on a sliding scale. Some are really, quite frankly, worth much because they're infirm, they're old. Some have special needs. It's just not a joyous alternative. I, I don't get it. I have a place to stand ethically. I, I have obligations I'm supposed to fulfill for, for my welfare to give me a future and a hope. So I've been with my grandkids, and uh, I took our VBS soundtrack with me, um, which was when VBS, there were was, there was six songs on the soundtrack. So every time they got in the car, they wanted to hear VBS music. And I played it. And really, I played it with joy uh, because it's, it's really good stuff. But it is in my brain now. I, I wake, seriously, I'm waking up in the middle of the night singing these songs. But let me give you one of the songs. You know, I'm just read one of these songs. It's a celebration of the Creator God. Listen, I'll try to read it without singing, which is difficult. Who makes a leopard's spots? Who makes horses nigh and trot? Gives bees their buzz and bears their fuzz, and ladybugs their dots. Who gives a zebra stripes and makes penguins black and white? God does. 
If you want to know him more and find out what you're made for, A, A, admit to God that you're a sinner and repent. B, believe that Jesus is the Son of God. C, confess your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That's what you're made for. My three-and-a-half-year-old is singing that grandson at the top of his voice. He understands, I hope, he's made for the glory of God. The chief man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That gives you a place to stand. In fact, that is so good, we're going to close in prayer. That's what you need to hear. That's it. That's what you're made for. So I would say, be very careful how you hear the word. Be very careful that, you, that, that the Scripture reveals to you the greatness and beauty of Christ and your brokenness and it awakens in you a hunger that builds you up in the faith. The second soil was the shallow enthusiast. The shallow enthusiast. It says here that one group receives the word with joy. Kind of scary. Preach that in two weeks. But they, they receive the word with joy. But because there's no root, they sprang up, and when persecution came, pushed back because of the word, they were gone. Now, in, in, in the Palestine, in my study, below the surface, there are limestone rocks that you can't detect as you plant. But, but as these limestone rocks are there, once the roots go down just a few inches, they can't burrow in, and the plant dies. The plant dies. If you've been a believer very long, two, three decades, you can say, well, I know people who seemingly received the word with joy, but they were gone after a while. These people, I think, wanted to be part of the enthusiasm and the fun and the blessing, but they didn't realize they needed a savior. They didn't realize they needed a rescuer. They didn't realize they needed to take on the yoke of Matthew 11 and learn from the one who is gentle and humble of heart who will give you rest for your souls. And so when persecution came and unpopularity or whatever, they slipped away. So that, that's why I love to come to church and usually the nine, nine o'clock service sitting right here, our group of older people, and I love them because for 40 and 50 and 60 years, they've had a sturdy, long-term obedience. They've lent, they've, they've, they've They've gone into the wind. They've had a long obedience in the same direction. We should esteem them and love them. They've raised their children and grandchildren under the banner of Christ. They've given to the things of the Lord year after year. They've just been faithful, 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 faithful unto the Lord. These people were not. These people, they were overnight wonders, received it with joy, and then they were gone. So if you ever are asking people, you know, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? A lot of times people will say, well, John 8, 32. You shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now, we like that. But I would just say glory in conjunctions. Listen to verse 31. Jesus says to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and, see, and, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Don't forget conjunctions. If you, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples, and you know the truth, and the truth will make you free. How are you receiving the word? And, and with, with a, 
a view of the majesty and greatness of God and your brokenness that will build you up. Or in John chapter 10, about the good shepherd, Jesus says this, verse 2, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Speaking of himself. To him the gatekeeper opens the door, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. On down in verse 15 or 16 it says, and I will I have other sheep that are of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. How do you know that you are in the Lord? You listen to the voice of the shepherd. You receive the word. The word exposes your sin, but it shows you the beauty and the glory and the majesty of the living Christ by the Holy Spirit. And it builds you in the way of Christ. How are you receiving the word, brothers and sisters? And thirdly, the third soil, there was the divided heart. You had the careless heart. You had the, the heart that was shallow enthusiast, and now you have the divided heart. And Jesus says with great clarity that the seed was planted, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. The choking process is gradual. It's gradual. Let me give you something. I've, I've thought about this a lot as I've grown older. It's what I call the worry bush. The worry bush. Life. So you start off, you say you're, some of the people here that are going to get married soon, some are going to have a baby soon. You're young, it's wonderful, you're healthy. Life is good. So, so right now, you're just like the, the trunk of a bush. And right now it's just you and your spouse or you yourself. And, 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 and then, but then you, you, have, you have kids. And all of a sudden the bush expands some. And the worries of life. If you have children and you're not worried, let me tell you this, you should be. <laughs> oh, life is rough. So you have kids, and then you start thinking about your kids, and you deal with them. And then about the time your kids hit the pubescent years, your parents have failing health. And so you have pubescent children, which is it's a joy to have teenage children, but it is a challenge. And, and, so, and so you're dealing with aging parents who need you frequently, and you're dealing with teenage children. And then your children kind of get over the hump, and they maybe they're, they're here. And about the time that happens, your, your parents die. See, the, the bushes get... And then your children have children. And if you have grandchildren and you're not worried, listen, you should worry, right? So it's the, the worry bush gets bigger and bigger. So what I'm saying is the, the, the chance for being consumed with worry expands through life. It doesn't, doesn't get easier. My opinion. It doesn't get easier. And about the time that your grandkids are born and your parents die, guess what? You start needing hearing aids. And you start slowing down. You start talking about, I used to run, but now I walk to the refrigerator and back. You know? 
So, so, work, so, so if you and I could get together and write a book, and I would, I would just sign it because I don't want it could be entitled, How to Beat Worry, We Will Be Multimillionaires Tomorrow Night. I don't think you beat worry. I think you manage worry. I think in a fallen world, you're going to have concerns. But I go to Matthew 6 where Jesus says, don't be consumed with worry. Instead of worrying, trust the Father. And whenever worry hits you, you just go, yes, that's a concern. Yes, that's going on. But I serve a gracious Abba Father who loves me and who clothed the lilies of the field. And they were much more splendid than King Solomon in all of his regal glory. And Jesus, you say, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and these things will be added to me. I'm going to intentionally seek you. But, but there are worries. And, and, and the second thing he says is worries and the deceitfulness of riches. And the thing about this group he's addressing, these, I think the vast majority of these people that he's talking to were day laborers, illiterate. And yet he looks at these day laborers and he says, don't be hoodwinked by the fact that riches promise you something they can never deliver. And if, if that's a message we need to hear, uh, then we need to hear it 5,000 times more now. We, we think if I only had this or drove this or lived here or did that or was married to this person, then I would have it all together. No, no. They, riches promise something they just can't deliver. And then I, I look at this and I just, I'll throw this in, but in our culture, I would also add just the, 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 the incredible belief in eternal youth. We want to be young forever. And then these things just choke the word. It's a gradual process that just chokes the word. Now, how are you receiving the word? Is the word awakening you to the beauty of Christ and your need and building you up to be a man or woman of God. Going back to Augustine real quick, I just threw this quote out and I've been thinking about it. So Augustine looks at his life and he says, who can unravel such a twisted and tangled naughtiness? K-N-O-T-T, naughtiness. That's me. He says, it is unclean. He says about himself. I hate to reflect upon it. I hate to look on it. But I long for you, O righteous God, so beautiful and glorious to virtuous eyes. I long for you. With, with you is perfect rest and life unchanging. He who enters into you enters into the joy of his Lord and shall have no fear and shall receive excellence in his performance. But I fell away from you as a young man, O God. And in my youth, I, I wandered too far from you. Who, you are my only support, and I became a wasteland. And I looked at that and said, naughtiness, wasteland versus the excellence of knowing Christ. I ask you, how are you receiving the word? The choking process involves not being awakened to my need. I am amazed at my ability and people's ability for self-deception. See, I need the word to be a mirror in my life. And I need brothers and sisters who help me read the word in the community and understand. And sometimes say, you're the man. I, uh, I enjoy personality tests. They're fun. Uh, 
It's, they're good talking pieces, but that's about all I think they are. I mean, they're talking pieces. I mean, for years, the Myers-Briggs was very popular. Are you NFIJ, whatever, or oh, what are you? And, uh, and you know, there are other tests we just as a staff took. Um, something called Right Path, which was a very interesting personality breakdown, good discussion piece years ago. There's somebody sitting here. And we ran a group together and we took a personality test and my personality came back. And we started reading it in our group. My friend laughed and he said, I think you answer the questions based upon what you want to be like and not what you're like. I said, oh, really? I said, I came across as ultra-organized, non-impulsive, long-term thinker, doesn't like spontaneity. That's me. I think he was right. In fact, I thought if you really want to do a personality test, ask your spouse to take it for you. Now, take them out to eat the night before to a restaurant they're not expecting and give them a gift and then give them the test. If you really want to know what you're like, ask your older children to do it. Now, I am never going to do that. I'm not that secure. I'm not that secure. But my, my point is, is that self-deception. I need the Word. I need the body of Christ. How are you receiving the Word? Is it awakening in your heart the glory of God and your need for rescuing daily? And building you up in faith. Let me go to another story that's not quite like the gas station story. On that horrible day, September the 11th, 2001, those of us who are older sat there with shock and disbelief. In the aftermath of the death of 3,000 people, we heard story after story, and one of the stories I heard on several fronts was that there were people on the higher stories of the buildings that were hit, and shortly after it happened, they realized they could not escape, and they'd be consumed by fire. They're going to die. And time after time, I read stories of people who sent texts to loved ones or called loved ones. And not one person checked on his stock portfolio to make sure he was earning 12%. Not one person looked on the web and saw where the next big sidewalk sale was going to be in New York over women's accessories. Not one woman, not one person looked at the odds for the upcoming NFL games that weekend. But countless people sent texts out saying, I can't reach my phone, I love you. Or Please forgive me for not making amends with you. And they would send those texts. And in countless situations, groups of two or three or four would hold hands and jump to their death instead of being consumed by flames. Now, I, I don't think we can live on a 9-11 emotion all the time. But I want to get there pretty much. I want to realize what really counts and what's going to have a long-term effect. And I want to really live for the glory of God and rejoice in that goodness and tell others about Him. And I do that, I believe, as I listen and receive the Word of God with diligence in such a way that it exalts the character of God and exposes my need and then builds me. 
How are you receiving the scripture? Let's pray. Lord, I, so thank you for this, for, for this, the, the, really the, the simplicity and profundity of the parables. And thank you that they laborers could hear this and be pierced in their heart. So may, may we receive the word of God well. And in such a way that it exalts the beauty and the greatness and the glory and the majesty and the joy and the purpose of the triune God and, and exposes my need for daily rescuing and builds me, builds this church, builds our homes, builds our friendships to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.